Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store, located at 1200 Central Avenue in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. Welcome to Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what is in the glass. We explore the stories and the culture and the people and the history behind the wine, and more often than not, we drink a little wine along the way, too, sometimes a lot of wine. I'm Gina Birch. And I'm Julie Glenn. As wine journalists, enthusiasts, and general lovers of all things wine, Gina and I read a number of wine publications. But there is one that kind of stands head and shoulders above the rest. There are so many publications out there, so many opinion people out there. Mm-hmm. But there is one, The Wine Spectator, that people tend to always turn to and respect. Yeah, you know, I, I was reading that before when I was just learning about wine. And it's one that just covers the gamut. And so happy to have joining us today for Great Minds Podcast is Wine Spectator Senior Editor and Tasting Director, Allison Napius. Allison... Good morning. Hello. Good afternoon. What, what you doing? <laughs> it's good to meet you. Thanks. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, Allison, you've been working at a Spectator's New York office for the last 19 years. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that you've seen change in wine journalism since you first started there. Well, I mean, I think you touched on one of them, that there's certainly more and more people talking and writing about wine all the time. That certainly has to do with the wine culture in the U.S. just expanding and also the ability to try many new wines from different places. You know, when I when I first started learning about wine, you really learned about the classic wine regions, so Bordeaux, Burgundy, Piedmont, Tuscany, and California. Um, and now it's expanded well beyond that, and there's a whole world of wine out there. Um, and, you know, every year a new vintage and new producers starting to make wine, so lots of exciting things to talk about in the world of wine these days. Well, as there are more publications and more novices or, or people that are uh, above average when it comes to their, their wine knowledge, writing and blogging, how does, is it a challenge for you to stay, continue to stay ahead of the pack and stay fresh and relevant? Well, I mean, I think that um, Wine Spectator has more than 40 years of experience right. doing this. And, and many of our editors, like me, have been there. Actually, all of our editors, I'm the youngest of the senior editors. Everyone's been there at least 20 years, 30, 35 years even so we're talking about a lot of people who can look back and take what they, they know in the history of the wine, world of wine and look forward, meeting the new young winemakers, seeing the trends, and applying that um, to what we find in the marketplace today and trying to let our readers know what the most exciting things and where they should focus their, focus their attention is. So I've got a lot of uh, questions to ask you. I know Julie does, too, as a, a fellow journalist and a wine lover. But I always kind of think it's fun to set the stage by going back to the beginning and when or how it was, where it was, how it was that you fell in love with wine the first time. Oh, well, <laughs> right? That's you know, a tough one. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question because there's so many wonderful experiences, I think, that draw you more and more into the world of wine. Um, but definitely I... So I went to school at Cornell studying hotel restaurant administration, and there was this great class, Introduction to Wines, which everybody at Cornell wanted to take, but as a hotel student, I was kind of fast-tracked to take it. Um, And that was a great overview class. That really um, got me interested in learning more about these regions, what the grapes were, who the producers were, 
um, the smaller areas, Appalachians or subzones. Um, so I liked it from that kind of academic approach. But then I would say also around that same time, um, I had a, a boyfriend at the time whose father was an importer, and the boyfriend pilfered a bottle of 1983 Cristal oh that he drank at some point. So I was very spoiled to have that experience, um, and that opened my eyes to you know older champagne, older wines, and that you know wine could be something more than just this simple, straightforward glass, which is a lot of what I was experiencing as a, a young student and not able to afford very expensive wine. Here's something that can really stand the test of time and offers more and more complexity and interest with age. So people who taste wine on the scale that you do, I mean, how many wines do you end up trying on a, on a general week or month? And do you have a method to this? How does it work? Absolutely, there's a method. Um, we basically, all of our tastings are blind. We don't know the producer. We don't know the price. We feel like this is the best way to give an unbiased viewpoint and to really offer a, as objective an opinion as possible to our readers. Um, obviously, we all have our own palate. So one of the things that we do at One Spectator is within each flight of lines, so consider probably 15 to 20 lines in a flight, which depends if it's something a bigger red, it might be a smaller number. If it's a lighter white, it might be a few more. But within each flight, we include a ringer, a wine that has been scored previously on a different day with the idea that you get to the end of the flight, you take the, they're actually in brown paper bags, you take the bottles out of the bag and you see, okay, I was 91 points on this ringer, you know, two weeks ago when I had it and I'm 91 points today. Great. You know, like I'm, my palate is kind of calibrated there. So you're consistent. I mean, how often are you not consistent? I mean, how, how often do you notice that? Because a lot of people say, you know, mood can... In, in no, fruit or root days. Fruit or root <laughs> days. There's that whole thing. Yeah. And then there's mood, time of yeah. day, all that. Do, do those things come into play ever? Or have you gotten your palate trained to the point where that does not bother it anymore? Well, I would say that, of course, that's going to come into play. Um, but the the amount of training that all of our tasters do, you know, several years of training prior to the point where they're even really seriously considered to become a taster for the, man, for the magazine helps to mitigate that to some extent. Um, but the ringers are definitely a good way for us to kind of gauge the situation on a given day. And if you, I, to be honest, more often than not, I'm pretty much right on on my ringer or, you know, maybe within one point. But when I'm not, that's the time that I look at the rest of the flight and I say, okay, I need to probably give all these, many of these wines another shot. And so I will mark it for what we say is retaste, and I retaste it again on another day when hopefully I'm a little bit more in line um, and can do a better job assessing the wines. On tasting days, do you not drink coffee or do you do anything specific to, to hone your palate, like not brush your teeth, or do you have some type of holy grail thing that you do consistently um, before you taste? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say that each taster probably has a, a schedule that they adhere to. I mean, I, I do have my morning coffee, but it's at <laughs> 6 30 in the morning and I'm not tasting until 10 30 or 11. Right. So, you know, there's a number of hours there in between. And I like to taste in the morning when my head's kind of fresh. Other people prefer to get, you know, office work and desk work done and then to taste in the afternoon. So there's not a, not any secret. I think that each person kind of figures out their, what works best for them. 
When you're choosing the wines to taste, because I've read somewhere where uh, you've got several wine spectator offices around the country that you literally get cases delivered to you every single day. So do you start there or do you say, okay, I'm really into Russian River Valley right now. I'm, I'm just going to look for Russian River, River Valley. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to travel there and randomly taste. Or is it some kind of combination of both? Um, it's it's definitely more scheduled and planned than that, I would say, um, because we, we are still a print publication and that necessitates shipping off our everything that we write to a printer and, and the whole distribution line of getting the magazines out there. So in advance, we plan what our editorial focus is going to be for each issue and kind of work backwards from there. So, for example, I know in December 15th, I'm going to be writing my annual tasting report about champagne. <gasps> Do you I need know help? When that When's the deadline? <laughs> we'll fly <Exactly>. up. <laughs> we, we do most of that tasting in the summer to prepare. So the summer is uh, one of our favorite times of year here in the New York office of Wine Spectator because mm-hmm. everyone's interested to taste great champagne. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty much, you know, working backwards from there and looking at, again, getting this idea of trying to reach out to novice wine drinkers as well as connoisseurs. We're looking at four wines that are going to be widely available, the household names that you know, in the example of Champagne, we'd be talking about Moet and Chandon and Veuve Clicquot. And then we want to go and try and reach out to people who have a more specific focus. Um, so like a small grower, grower producer, exactly. You know, So we're trying to kind of tailor our request for wine samples to meet all those audiences, and as well as looking out for something new or interesting. Um, but as you said, we do literally it is a dozens of cases of wine each day. Um, we taste about 12,000 wines a year in the New York office and around five or 6,000 in the Napa office. So it's a lot of wine samples coming in. We work with importers, distributors, wineries to kind of streamline exactly which wines are going to arrive just to make sure we're getting what we want instead of uh, just this kind of you know random influx of samples, which we may or may not taste. So do you, so you sp- specifically find a winery and say, I would like to try a sample of this for specific tasting for a thing. But like, for example, Jacques Champagne that he has been doing for the last 10 years or whatever. How does somebody like that try to get on your radar? How do you find those people? Well, we definitely make some requests, but we also allow uh, anybody who, a winemaker or a winery or an importer distributor to propose wines to us as well. So that's a big part of um, it's our request, but it's also what people are suggesting to us from the distribution end to try. And we usually will review those wines. At this point, um, with 40 years of tastings, there's a, a lot of them we've tried at one point of time, but there's also some research that goes in when it's a new name, um, you know, looking up a website or whatever information we can find and trying maybe not the full range of wines, but a sampling to kind of get a gauge on the quality level. Um, all of our tasters are also visiting wine regions on a regular basis and uh, going to trade tastings, that sort of thing, to keep your eyes open and see what else is out there other than the names we know. Okay. Champagne's fabulous and everything, but there's one region that I think is among your specialties that is one of my favorites, and that is Alto Adige. I knew you were going to say that. You knew I was going to go <laughs> yeah. there. I love almost everything coming out of there. Could so you, fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, from your professional perspective, can you give our listeners maybe like a little overview of Alto Adige and things they should look for from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the great thing, so Alto Adige is northern, very far northern Italy, and we're talking about mountain agriculture, a lot of vineyards at altitude. 
And um, they make everything from white through sparkling wine, through dessert wine, really. But I think, you know, what stands out for sure is their white wines. They have this wonderful kind of crisp minerality to them, um, but also fruit flavors. And I think they're kind of, in my mind, I feel like they're crowd pleasers when you serve an Alto Adige white, it's something that almost everyone says, oh, this is good. What is it? Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're well known for Pinot Bianco, Pinot Grigio in the white wine category, but they most producers in Alto Adige make a range of grape varieties. So you see some little known grapes like Turgau or Kerner, Silvaner. So it's a, a great place to explore, you know, some of the grapes that might be more familiar like Pinot Grigio, but also dive in and try some little known varieties. Awesome. I had a life-changing Gewurz demeanor there. Did you? Man. Mm. I just love I, I yeah. want to go back to the region because of that wine. It happens. <laughs> I like the Sylvaner. I have to say, I've, I've tried a few of those lately. But let's change uh, Let's change uh, paths here a little bit. Let's talk about ratings. Uh, because uh, besides all the great feature stories on wineries and the regions that you do at Wine Spectator, ratings are something that the magazine is, is, uh, is pretty famous for. And especially for some connoisseurs, for retailers, for winemakers, ratings are kind of the gold standard. But they're also a double-edged sword in a way. And the system has come under fire a little bit because those numbers are subjective. As you just said, they're according to the tastes of you and and other people, uh, obviously, who have more experience than the average bird. But um, you have a great influence on the wine world. Um, Tell us how the ratings, have you seen a change in in, um, how they're being accepted? Or is it pretty much still... Uh, the gold standard for from what your perspective? I mean, I, I think that um, ratings are, yes, this is a challenge. As I said, we're trying to make things as objective as possible, but at the end of the day, tasting, liking wine, enjoying wine is a subjective experience. Um, we do a number of things to try and make it as objective as possible. As I was mentioning, you know, the, the blind tasting, the ringer, et cetera, Another aspect that we've, another way we've gone, I should say, is to have each taster specialize in the region. So as you mentioned, I specialize in wines from Alto Adige, from Champagne. So when you see a score for a wine from Champagne, that's a score from me. It's not from, you know, any one of the wine spectator staff uh, members. So I think over time, we're hoping that people who are really following wines from Champagne or wines from Alto Adige will get a sense of what my palate is like, um, and if I like something and they like those wines, it probably means they want to follow along with my ratings. If they keep finding that they don't agree with my assessment, then probably I'm not the person for them to follow and they might want to look to somebody else's ratings. Um, you know, the, the other aspect of it is that we're tasting all of our official ratings, or I should say 99.9% are in our offices in New York or in Napa Valley. And so it's in the same setting every day. We're, you know, using the same methodology. And I help, I think that really helps to kind of find this objective level that we're looking for. Consistency, yeah. Exactly, because, yeah. you know, that house wine you had at the Trattoria in Orvieto <laughs> is probably not going to taste the same at your kitchenette no. when you get back home. Mm-hmm. And it, or the, the white one you're on your yacht in Greece. That, oh. oh, yeah, my yacht. I forgot about yes. that one. Yeah, that one. <laughs> that was a great one. But I really love your answer that if you find that you agree with the palate of the person giving the scores, then that would be the person that you would follow. I mean, there are people out there that have a certain palate that I know is 100% opposite of my palate. Mm-hmm. So if they score it high, I'm going to know that I'm probably not going to like it. But if they score it kind of marginally, I'll be like, well, maybe that's something I should try. <laughs> So you're on a 100-point rating system. How do you figure those 100 points out when you're tasting um, any a champagne or any wine? Yeah, you know, 
Um, I know that some people, when they're assessing wines, have kind of a, a breakdown and different aspects of each wine get a, a different score, and you add up the scores to total, ideally, 100 or 20 or whatever it may be. We don't really do that here, um, or at least it's not my methodology. So I can tell you what I'm looking for in wine is to take a look at the structure to see if the important aspects that I would expect are there. So acidity, tannins, body, et cetera. Um, also the flavor range. So thinking about what the grape variety and the appellation or subzone, where the wine is from, if I'm getting kind of the range of flavors that I, are typical to this, or if it's something that's an outlier and a little bit different, is it an outlier in a good way? Or is it an outlier like, oh, something might be wrong here? Um, so those would definitely be, you know, some big components to it. And then also kind of overall style and um, how they're putting everything together to give a wine that hopefully is, you know, very enjoyable for wine lovers to try. I hear people who think 89 points is a failure. And I think that's so wrong. I mean, you know, 89 points is still a pretty darn good wine, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we actually kind of break down our 85 to 89 points we consider to be a very good wine. And if 89 points is a failure, then I'm in trouble because I drink <laughs> 88 and 89-point wines all the time. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, like a lot of times these are the wines that are kind of your everyday drinking wines. They're not too expensive. They give you a great introduction to the region or the grape variety. Um, and some of these higher scoring wines, okay, like, wow, 96 points. That sounds amazing. But, you know, that 96-point wine maybe isn't the wine that you're going to open while you're getting ready for dinner, you know, or to have with uh, some sal salumi, some cheese, that kind of thing. It's a more serious wine that has needs kind of the right pairing. And I actually think the 88, 89-point wines a lot of times are the ones that have a lot more versatility and can be enjoyed in a lot of different settings. And it's also important to point out that there are a lot of people that ha that do ratings. Sometimes they'll be like, this is a 98-point wine from the Collier County uh, Fair <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Have you seen those state fair ratings that they put stickers on bottles? It's really kind of misleading to the general public. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also find it uh, amusing when we have people send us, they propose wines to be tasted, and they give us the laundry list, list of awards they've had. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm very great for them. They are getting some good recognition, but the fact is we're going to put that in a brown paper bag and none of those uh, awards yeah. are going to matter to us when we're judging it. It so. does not matter how well it paired with a corn dog or funnel cake <laughs> no. at the county fair. <laughs> Although I would like to know what would, would pair with a corn dog. <laughs> what do you drink when you're at home chilling on a weekend? Uh, well, I, I love sparkling wine, not just champagne. So mm -hmm. I would say a lot of Friday nights for, um, for me and my husband uh, start with a bottle of sparkling wine. And um, I have definitely, so I started covering wines from Italy in 2010, and I taste everything except for Tuscany and Piedmont. So that's 18 other wine regions mm -hmm. in Italy, some of them very small, but all of them with their own great varieties and traditions. So I spend a lot of time drinking and tasting Italian wine because there's so much to explore, and I'm always looking for what's new and interesting from the different regions. Okay, and this is a sidebar. I'm gonna, I might even cut this out in the end, but I'm, I want to know what your feeling is about the region of Calabria. And I only ask this because I know that region well because my husband's from there. I actually, like, I, when people ask me about what to look for that's new and interesting from Italy, a lot of times Calabria is one of my um, answers because I think Galliopo, the signature grape variety, has a lot of potential to be expressed in different ways. 
I think they've been doing good work on improving quality over the last few decades, and you know we're starting to see the effect of better winemaking, better viticulture. Everything's you know coming together, uh, but they're definitely under the radar. So yeah, hard I always, to find the wine sometimes. I always kind of wondered if there are some international varieties that would do well down there. I always wondered why they didn't do Syrah, for example, or some other of the wa- the warmer weather ones. Yeah, I mean, I could see Syrah with all the heat and the sunlight there doing very well, but um, they they definitely they stick more with the native varieties. So who knows? Maybe in time. Um, I don't know. Calabrians are known for their stubbornness, <laughs> and it's a well-earned <laughs> reputation. <laughs> You sound like you're speaking from experience. Yes, I am. <laughs> Eight years of it. No, ten. Ten, I think. Sorry. So, Allison, Wine Spectator is putting on three grand tours this year. There was one in Vegas. There was one in Chicago. The last one this year is in Miami. It's on the evening of May 10th at the beautiful, historic Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami. Are we going to see you there? Yes, I'll absolutely be there. Um you know, Wine Spectator, we love to come down to Miami. We participate every year in the South Beach Wine and Food Festival, and there's just a whole lot of wine and food lovers there. So I think the idea to have the Grand Tour in Miami at the final stop, actually, this year um, was one that makes a lot of sense and looking forward to it. So this tour is going to feature the top 100 wines of Wine Spectator for the year? No, well, actually, it's almost 250 wines. Oh. Um, they are, yeah, this is uh, not top 100 specific, although hmm, I wonder, it's it's possible that there might be overlap. Um, But so yeah, the Grand Tour is about 250 wines each year. They're all what we consider to be outstanding or 90 points or higher is how they've rated. Um, And it's really though getting to that world of wine, everything from South America, South Africa, Europe, California, Oregon, Australia, New Zealand, so if you are a wine lover and you want to go to explore, there's lots of opportunities there. But it's also a lot of really classic wine names, producers that, you know, are expensive or hard to find. And this is your opportunity to taste the wine. And I know you can get those tickets on your website if people listening want to go. Um, are there, is there anyone in particular that we should definitely seek out or any wines or anything that you know of that's going to be there? Because Julie and I are going to go. We'll be there. And we want to strategically oh, plan this this 250 wine Surgical drinking strike. experience. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 250 wines, you can't get to them all. So... Uh, you can buy the tickets online, but you can also download the wine list of who's going to be there, what they will be pouring. So I would say it's definitely worth the time to take a look at that, a look at that ahead, ahead of time. Um, you know, for myself, I always love to start with, as I said, sparkling wines. So there's a great list of champagnes, but we also have Franciacorta from Italy, Cadol Bosco. So this is not Prosecco. It is sparkling wine made in the same method as champagne from north, from about an hour outside of Milan. And this is a beautiful wine. There's also a number of great sparkling wines from California. Um, so I would probably start out there. But then I think the thing to look out for for me will be um, 2015, uh, thinking specifically about Tuscany. There is more than a, there's a dozen from Tuscany, and this is just a great vintage from Tuscany. You can't can't kind of go wrong with it. And here's an, a chance to try everything from Chianti Classico to a Brunello to a red blend from Tuscany, all from the same great vintage and kind of all in a row. So um, those would be some of the things I would look out for. Uh, do you guys have any favorite wine regions that you're looking to explore? 
Well, of course, Alto Adjuna. Alto Adjuna, that's going to yeah. be mine. But and I'll, Julie I'll loves Beaujolais. I love champagne. Yeah, you'll find me um, at the Beaujolais counter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if there's like if they're cordoned off in different regions. I'm wondering, so do you get kind of competitive or almost excited if wines that you have rated end up in this top tier? Or is there any kind of competition among the tasters that their wines are the ones that, do they champion the ones they've rated? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I completely. I want to see the the wineries, the people that I know that are doing the hard work be highlighted in this way. So we do kind of a long process of all of the tasters giving input on who they think should be invited each year. Um, and, you know, for me, where I'm covering, for example, in Italy, some of these regions that are not as well known, I really try and push them forward because I, I love wines from Tuscany, I love wines from Piedmont, but I think there's just such a wonderful diversity to Italy that I, I like to be able to shine the spotlight on some of the lesser-known areas. And um, I think that's kind of true of the Grand Tour as a whole, that the idea is to see really the, the breadth of the wine world and to look to some of the classic regions, Bordeaux, California Cabernet, Tuscany Piedmont, but also to explore great things from southern Spain or something from New Zealand that you've never thought of before, you know, something outside of Sauvignon Blanc, for example. All right, so if you want to buy those tickets again, winespectator.com. Miami is the last one of the year. If you miss it this year, start looking for next year, and maybe you can make some travel plans to to get to that grand tour. And make sure you keep an eye on the Grapevine social media pages on May 10th and throughout that weekend as well, because we're going to be posting lots of photos, lots of videos, and lots of stories from the Winespector Grand Tour in Miami. Thank Allison Napius once again, Wine Spectator Senior Editor and Tasting Director. And by the way, Allison, if you ever need some help tasting, um, Julie and I, we're, we're pretty good at it. You know, we'll come, we'll come right. help you. Yeah, we, have, we have a gift. <laughs> yeah, we have some volunteers. <laughs> Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producers for online media are Anna Bejarano and Tara Calligan. Technical production is by Mike Canary. Great Minds theme music for Zante is by Colin Manning. To get in touch, check grapeminds.org or call the Grapeline and ask a wine question that we can address on a future show. That number is 707-200-3632. Thanks for listening.